Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. I got a fever. And the only prescription... It's more cowbell. Start! You can call me Bruce. Bruce Nolan is standing by. Hey, wacky Bruce. Coming to you from an undisclosed location, this is the Bruce Exclusive. And here's your host... Bruce Nolan. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to another edition of the Bruce Exclusive, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. There is a chance that this is the first podcast you are listening to. In the year 2021. 2021. Some people thought we'd never make it. There were days I thought we'd never make it. But here we are. In 2021. Listening to the Bruce Exclusive. With a playoff bound division champion. Buffalo Bills. Today's pod is going to be a little bit different in structure. Because we are not doing crumbling cookies. Why, Bruce? Why are we not doing crumbling their cookies? It's hard to write a strategy piece for a game where you don't know who's playing. Sean McDermott has said that he has a plan and that they're going to keep those things internal, which means I don't have the luxury of knowing what's going to go on. And it's almost impossible for me to write a strategy piece if I don't know if Matt Barkley's starting or not. And I don't know if Jerry Hughes is starting or not. And I don't know if Stephon Diggs is starting or not. So I didn't write that article for Buffalo Rumblings. And we're not going to talk about it on the pod. But we do have a lot of almighty takes to get into. So that's what we're going to do. As a reminder, you can email me. I am Bruce Almighty at Yahoo.com with your almighty take of the week. And we will go over it on the Friday pod. Historically, I have managed to put it into a probability bucket. Highly improbable, somewhat improbable, somewhat probable, and highly probable. If you'll notice, this is related to the pod we did yesterday where we talked about football not being a game of absolutes, but rather probabilities because it's all connected. It's all part of the plan. I've been doing almighty takes for a long time now, and I've been putting them in these probability buckets. And then all of a sudden I have a podcast that's about football being part of a probability spectrum and not zero to a hundred, not binary, black or white, yes or no. So much like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, it's all connected unless we decide to randomly exclude the television shows that were actually really good and never got their due. But I digress. 
Let's dive into the Almighty Takes because we have a lot of them. We're going to probably have to take a break in the middle of the Almighty Takes. Evan has a couple for me. Evan has a long-term take. If not this year, the Bills will win at least one Super Bowl by 2025. Josh Allen will also have an MVP season by 2025. I also think the goalposts for why, quote-unquote, Josh isn't good will move back. It used to be, well, he's a mockery of an NFL quarterback. Then it was, he's Blake Bortles or Mitch Trubisky. Now people will compare him to Wentz and Goff. Eventually, it'll be he's really not that great because he has less rings than Brady, Manning, Elway, Favre, even though wins are not a quarterback stat. That's right, Evan. You know what's up. Also, just thought of this one for Miami. Bills lock up the two seed this Monday. He sent this take in before the Monday Night Football game. Highly improbable because Miami isn't bad, but I think with their how versus their why, they mess up and lose to Buffalo's backups because Barkley is humble and hungry, a la the Steelers game from 2004. Luckily, with the rest, the D-line puts on their big boy pants in the wild card, beating Baltimore and moving to the divisional round. Anyway, I hope my less-than-outlandish almighty takes don't come back to haunt me, as I will take credit for the 48-19 win due to my prediction of Josh Allen nutrition and performance. Okay, so let's start with this one before we go on to the next one. There are always going to be people who don't think Josh Allen's the guy. Because there are always boxes left to check unless you're Patrick Mahomes. Patrick Mahomes, in his first three years, has won an NFL MVP, a Super Bowl trophy, and a Super Bowl MVP. He has also been a darling of film people and analytics people alike. Patrick Mahomes is pretty much universally loved. Now, there is a subsection of analysts this year who point out that he has 16 dropped interceptions, the most in the league. So his numbers probably wouldn't look as good if more of those got caught. But until there's nothing left to nitpick, people are going to nitpick. So I agree with that. Bills win at least one Super Bowl by 2025. I'm going to go somewhat improbable just because of numbers. I think the Bills have a good team. I think they can do it. But just winning a Super Bowl is one out of 32 and realistically probably one out of like 14 or 12 every year. So it's hard to win a Super Bowl. So I'll go somewhat improbable, but I'm not going to go highly improbable because I think the Bills are going to have a good team over the next couple of years. Josh Allen will also have an MVP season by 2025. I think that's somewhat improbable too. Again, I think it's totally possible. Josh Allen, if it wasn't for Aaron Rodgers going absolutely bat crap crazy this year and Patrick Mahomes getting a little bit lucky with the interceptions, I think Josh Allen probably win it this year. So I don't think it's crazy at all. In regards to Miami losing to Buffalo's backups, I think that becomes a lot more possible now that they don't have fits to fall back on. I think that the defense rounding into form schematically and execution-wise with a experienced defensive coach like Sean McDermott and Leslie Frazier can make the world really difficult on Miami and Tua. So I don't think it's absurd that the Bills backups beat Miami. I think Miami's a good team, but they've been kind of skating by on some opportunistic defense and a lack of natural offensive ability that kind of has to be schemed up until they put Ryan Fitzpatrick in because Tua hasn't shown yet that he's ready to lead a dynamic offense. Ironically enough, I mentioned this on Twitter. There was a lot of people who thought that the Bills 
were the 2018 Bears. And that they had an opportunistic defense and they had a quarterback who wasn't quite there and it was going to all fall down around them. I wonder if we're going to hear the same things about the 2020 Miami Dolphins. Because we should. They won games in a very similar fashion to the 2018 Bears. So I think that's a very reasonable take. Evan comes back with another one and says, I'm less of a football fan than a Bills fan. In my real life, I'm much more involved in MMA and grappling. I watched the first non-Bills game since the last Super Bowl in the Miami versus Las Vegas game. Two things. First almighty take is Ryan Fitzpatrick is the 21st century Doug Flutie. Two is Rob Johnson and Brian Flores is Wade Phillips. Flores is a good coach, but juggling quarterbacks will be a fatal mistake for this franchise. All right, I have commented on this before. There are plenty of people out there in the universe who disagree with me. I agree with you. I do not think that Brian Flores bouncing back and forth between quarterbacks is a good idea. Not because of the traditional, you're going to damage Tua. I do think there's a small psychological component to that. You know, being fearful of making mistakes, taking chances, because if you don't score points or if you screw up, your coach is going to bench you. However, I am not arrogant enough to assume that I can understand the inner workings of Tua Tungavaloa's head from watching him on television. So I'm not going to overplay that. I acknowledge that it's a possibility, but that's about as far as I go when it comes to that. However, Brian Flores wants to have his cake and eat it too. He wants to develop Tua and he wants to try and win now. And what's going to happen is he's on the verge of missing the playoffs and missing out on both things. If you miss the playoffs as a Miami Dolphins team for 2020, then the time you spent with Ryan Fitzpatrick, who's not going to be there next year, was almost entirely in the service of trying to convince your locker room you were going to win now. But they probably weren't already convinced of that because you pulled him for Tua. So you just wasted valuable reps that could have gone to developing Tua by giving them to Ryan Fitzpatrick. Either you want to win now and you play Ryan Fitzpatrick, or you want to develop Tua and you put him in. But unless Tua is clearly the better player, which he's not, the team knows. They know what you're doing. You're trying to have your cake and eat it too. And they are right now on the razor's edge of losing out on both things. Losing out on valuable Tua reps and losing out on the playoffs. I think it's a bad move. I'm not in favor of it. Plenty of people think it's brilliant. Some NFL analysts called it genius. I'm not on board. Evan's next take. I don't know which team this will happen against or which round, but the Buffalo Bills are going to beat down a good team badly. It's going to look like Stipe Miocic defending the UFC contender spot by crushing Francis Ngannou about two years ago. I saw a clip of Pat McAfee thinking it could be Kansas City. I'm not as sure as him. In fact, I don't think he's all that informed on his opinions. But the defense keeps in current form, and if John Brown coming back makes the offense even more potent and Singletary Moss keep their mojo going, it could happen to some good team. All right, so context. Stipe Miocic is the heavyweight champion of the world in the UFC. He is from Cleveland. Specifically, he's from Valley View, which is a suburb on the east side of Cleveland, where he is a firefighter as well. And Francis Ngannou, the guy he fought, was is this absolutely terrifying power hitter. And Stipe Miocic just kind of ground him into the dirt with a lot of wrestling, a lot of ground and pound, kind of took the wind out of his sails. It was... It was hyped up as this really huge fight, and 
it, it was kind of embarrassing, to be honest, for Francis Ngannou. He got dominated. So that's the context that you're thinking about right there. I do think the Bills have a chance to beat down a good team. I don't know if it's Kansas City. I don't think you beat down a team with an offense that good. But if the Bills come out round one and face the Browns and are able to put a plug on that running game and pressure Breaker Mayfield, Breaker Mayfield is a really respectable quarterback when he's not pressured. When you pressure him, it gets bad. So is there the recipe there for a beatdown? Sure, there's a recipe there for a beatdown. I'm not saying it's going to happen. I'm saying I can see a logical avenue for it happening. I'm not going to get the cart ahead of the horse, but I think this is a somewhat probable take that the Bills have a really strong game against a good team. I don't think that the AFC playoffs will be populated by teams that aren't good. A 10-win team is going to miss the playoffs, at least. At least a 10-win team is going to miss the playoffs in the AFC. So I think this is somewhat probable. David says, I have some takes that center around the idea that other teams may try to do what the Bills did with Josh Allen. Number one, you have been known to use the word improbable regarding Josh Allen's development. Did Dable and McDermott just get lucky? Or were they able to see what they could do with him? And does this require a last name ending in two consonants? Number two, how likely would he have worked out if another team had drafted him? Now that the Bills have shown how, how many teams could duplicate him? Let's start with the first part of this. No, they didn't get lucky. Lucky is too strong of a word for what I want to talk about. Lucky implies that it's all just random. Luck implies a level of randomness. And I don't think it's all a crapshoot. Oh, the draft's a crapshoot. doesn't matter. There is a well-known draft analyst who has openly said that the idea of being good or bad at evaluating talent is a farce. You should just take as many swings as you possibly can, trade down as much as you can, because there's no such thing as being good or bad at evaluating talent. I would very much disagree with that. It is not all random. It is not all luck. And they knew more about him than we did. So I don't think they got lucky because the key thing with them is they can think it's improbable and still do it because it only has to work out once for them. Things that are improbable happen. I'll give you some examples of things that are crazy improbable, but still happen. People die via vending machine. Your odds of dying via vending machine are one in 112 million. Your chances of having identical quadruplets are 1 in 15 million. Your chances of becoming president are 1 in 10 million. Your chances of dying from a bee, hornet, or wasp sting is 1 in 6.1 million. Your chances of being a movie star are 1 in 1.5 million. Your chances of dying by flesh-eating bacteria are 1 in 1 million. Your chances of dying in a bathtub are 1 in 840,000. Your chance of dying in an on-the-job accident are 1 in 48,000. Your chances of dying in a car accident are 1 in 6,700. All those things are low odds. That doesn't mean they don't happen. And if you feel like your guy is the one, then you're going to do it. So both of those things can exist simultaneously. It can be improbable. You can know it's improbable and you can still do it with confidence that this is the one. 
right around half of all marriages end in divorce. I still see people popping the question, putting a ring on it. You know why? Because you think your one is the good one. I did it. I asked my wife to marry me knowing full well what the probabilities were. Because it only has to work out once. And for them, they saw something in Josh Allen that said, I understand that it's already improbable. Just taking a quarterback in the first round and having him work out is already a low chance. And then on top of that, you have all these other things, but they don't really care about that stuff so much. They just think about this one guy in front of them. So those two things can coexist. I can say it's improbable and also say they didn't get lucky. And I do think it requires a last name ending in two consonants. Definitely. Dable, McDermott, for sure. If another team would have drafted Josh Allen, it depends on the team. If Arizona would have drafted Josh Allen, I don't think he would have worked out as well. If Baltimore would have drafted Josh Allen, there's a chance he would have been okay. For sure. I don't think he would have gotten there. The rumor was that Arizona liked him better than Josh Rosen. But... If the Jets would have drafted him and Adam Gase would have got a hold of him, probably not. The Browns, if he would have stuck around, maybe. I do think that the heavy play action drop back intermediate passing game that the Browns utilize is something that Josh Allen could have been good at. Ryan Tannehill has done well at that in Tennessee. So I think it depends on the organization. But the fact that he got drafted by Buffalo with the same coaching staff and the same offensive coordinator in a good spot for him, I think matters a lot. I do think there will be other teams who are going to be looking for the next Josh Allen. They're going to be saying, gosh, you know, maybe we can take a toolsy guy with some ball placement issues and turn around. And I think that's a mistake. Like I said, it's still an improbability. Just because it worked out doesn't mean it wasn't. And I think that we may be the benefit as Bills fans of watching other teams try to do it. So I'm all on board with other teams trying to find the next Josh Allen because he's a special player. And he's thus far proven a lot of people wrong. Daniel says, I'm not sure if you were asking for these specifically, but I think I may have the best one. So please indulge me because it took me years to put the pieces together because I was young and I didn't really know how I became a Bills fan. For those of you who have not been following along, There's been this strange sub-niche that has kind of evolved of Bills fans sending me their almighty takes, telling me their stories of how they became a Bills fan. Because I have a weird one, right? I counted up all of my football cards randomly one day, and I said, whoever I have the most cards of, I'm going to be a fan of that team. And the Bills happened to be the team I had the most cards of. So Daniel says, it would help if your listeners are familiar with the former Washington Redskins defensive lineman Dexter Manley, it's important to know how massive of a man he was and is. So I'm from West Virginia, and as a kid, my dad, who's a diehard Steelers fan, took us to the Hall of Fame game every year. Partly because it was a short drive, and partly because my mom tolerated the weekend because the parade they held on Saturday was well done. The 1989 game was Washington versus Buffalo. Back then, days were different, and at the stadium in Canton, Ohio, the setup was as such. The locker room was a field house adjacent to the stadium with a grass patch that the players would walk through. 
fans could kind of linger slash mingle there and either haggle players or jock sniff depending on their allegiance. I was six years old at the time and a precocious little boy, so when Manley walked out of the locker room, I proceeded to attempt to tackle him. My father will co-sign this story, although there is no visual evidence. So as I was clinging to the shin of Manly, he grabs me by the arm shoulder and lifts me over his head with one arm. And while we're not exactly sure what he said to me, I'm sure it was all along the lines of, where is this kid's parents and he should know better. This is where it can become open to interpretation. I'm assuming that my young self was mad at this large man embarrassing me in front of a large group of people and decided to root against that team for the rest of my days. Therefore, because the game was against the Bills, my fandom was born. But there's a part two. Again, I'm from West Virginia. We had one jersey and fan store in our local mall. It's now 1990-1991, and we are winter jacket shopping with my mom. Somehow, some way, there is a Buffalo Bills starter jacket in my size in West Virginia. From that day, the Bills fandom was cemented. There's a pocket of kids around my age in West Virginia that became Bills fans because of me, as we were surrounded by Cowboys and Steelers fans. Shout out to the JCPenney catalogs so they could get like me. Crazy enough, my brother became a Washington football team fan, so it may have been part anger toward Manly and then my brother going opposite that made it happen. And it is my brother that believes more than me that Josh Allen is MVP this year. He believes more in an NBA-type argument. If one guy is more the reason that a team makes a drastic turnaround than anything else, then give him the statue, a la Russell Westbrook from 2016-17. James Harden is another example. And you know what? He's starting to convince me that he's not wrong. We don't want the same results from those players, but the logic is not crazy. Happy holidays to you, and go Bills from Daniel. That's a heck of a story. Me deciding that I wanted to become a Bills fan because I had a lot of cards and you deciding you wanted to be a Bills fan because they were playing against a guy who just embarrassed you, that's pretty good. I'm not going to lie. Moving along, Ryan says, from Saratoga Springs, coming at me with his first ever almighty take, Ryan, thank you for being a part of this. He said this before the Monday night game. The take, Brian Dable will be with the Buffalo Bills next year. He will be a finalist for a couple of organizations, but only gets one offer. The team in question is very dysfunctional, and he chooses not to waste what might be his only shot at a head coaching job. The second part to lower the probability, he will find a much better situation the following year and have a nice career. Finally, I wanted to add my little how I became a Bills fan. I grew up outside Buffalo near Orchard Park, but was never a huge fan. I had a Raiders jacket at one point even. When I got to college, the Bills were starting their Super Bowl runs, and I was surrounded by fans from downstate who were bashing Buffalo all the time. Loyalty to the hometown kicked in, and I quickly went full-blown fan. To emphasize the point, after I moved to NYC, I had Lenovo Pizza shipped in from Buffalo for the first game of several seasons. Love the pod. I've learned a lot. Ryan. Yeah, for some people, the Bills fandom is like little brother syndrome. Right? I'm allowed to make fun of them, but you're not allowed to make fun of them. <laughs> I'm allowed to ba- I'm allowed to bash on my team. I'm allowed to criticize my team, but you can't because you're not one of us. And you don't understand. So I can understand the, the fight or flight, the older brother sort of vibes kicked in for Ryan. In regards to the take, I am operating under the assumption that Brian Dable's gone. There's just, there's too many teams looking for all the things that Brian Dable is. So I'm going to say highly improbable. I think he's gone. I would love to be wrong, but I am operating on the assumption that Brian Dable will be gone. The league has trended toward offensive-minded coaches who can develop quarterbacks. Not only does he have that, 
He has all of the soft skills that people love about Sean McDermott and the organizational building tendencies. Plus, you can get a package deal potentially with someone like Malik Boyd from the front office of the Buffalo Bills. It just makes too much sense for him to not be gone. So I'm going to operate on the assumption that he's gone. And he says, Bruce, I'm an avid sports talk radio listener living in New York City, and Almighty Takes have become one of my favorite things to listen to every week. It's like getting to call into the show without having your point stopped short, twisted into the next segment, and without waiting on hold for 45 minutes. No matter how lengthy the Almighty Takes are, you try to explore them in as much detail as you can. It's an absolute pleasure to listen to. Thank you. I appreciate that. I I will admit I do have to cut some of these short because I get books, but please know I read them all, every single one of them. And some of them I'm not even able to get to because they come at weird times and I, I have to cut them for short, but know that it matters to me. The almighty take from Andy is Sean McDermott convinces Brian Dable to forego taking a head coaching job until the bills win a Super Bowl. hashtag process. All right. I already talked about this. I just talked about this. I, I think Dable's gone. I don't think, I really don't think McDermott would try to convince him to be honest. I think McDermott wants to see his people succeed because he cares about his coaches. And I don't know. He would even try to stop him from going. I think he'd give his advice on things like that. But you remember Sean McDermott talking about people who told him that he was insane for taking the Buffalo Bills job. Now that you know that those people were in Sean McDermott's life, I don't think he's going to be one of those people to one of his coaches. That's just my opinion based on what he said. Andy says, during last week's Almighty Takes Pod, you told a story of a guy from Galway who became a Bills fan because a random Bills fan told him to look up the Super Bowl run in the 90s. You also mentioned you had a running list of pod ideas for the offseason. This got me thinking. What about gathering stories on how non-Western New Yorkers became Bills fans? They would have to be some qualifiers, though. These people can't have stories based on how they grew up in Buffalo, or they don't live near Western New York, but their parents are Bills fans, or they married into a Bills family. I'm sure you can narrow this further to your liking. I share this idea because I want to share my story. Unlike the fan in Galway who joined the Bills Mafia from watching the successes of the 90s, my story is grounded in developing an emotional connection to the team through some of the drought's worst moments. I think that's kind of what's happening right now, Andy. I kind of think it's happening organically. I don't even think I'm going to have to do a pod on it. I think it's just going to kind of sort of show up. (laughs) Every Friday, we'll get a couple that come in here with their kooky stories. Andy says, I grew up in the NYC metro area. Where if you include Jersey, there are nine teams in the four major sports. Thus, growing up, I was never surrounded by fans on any particular team. And for the most part, I never picked one. Knicks made the NBA Finals in 99. Great. Nets made it there in 02 and 03. Incredible run. And I enjoyed all of it. The only exception was the Mets. Both of my parents were born and raised in Queens. Becoming a Yankee fan was sacrilegious. Sidebar, my wife's favorite television show of all time is The King of Queens. And obviously Doug Heffernan is a Mets fan there. So there's a strange connection there for her as well. My emotional connection to the team, Andy says, was forged in 06 during the NLCS when Andy Chavez made the catch. But euphoria would dissolve to borderline rage a few innings later when Carlos Beltran struck out looking to send the cards to the World Series. Misery repeated itself in 07 and 08 when the Mets blew their postseason chances on the last day of the season. Two Years in a row. How is that actually possible? And then he deleted a bunch of expletives from his email. With this foundation, I began following football closely in 2007 
when I started college at a small private institution in Erie County, where the residence halls were dominated by people who were born west of the 81. While I knew that the bills existed, week one made me really pay attention. Kevin Everett. With crosstown rivalries and NYC sports, a devastating injury was often met with zero empathy or even worse, disdain from half the people you ran into. Not here. I was suddenly immersed in the Pray for Kevin Everett chants. Facebook groups, you name it. It was everyone. I had never seen it before. It was different and exciting being surrounded by fans of a single team and having those fans care as much as Bill's fans did. I used to think that diehard football fans were straight up psychopaths, but this moment made me truly put fandom in perspective. So naturally, when news of the Toronto series broke that season and there were rumors of the Bills moving to Canada, when friends spoke about raising Toronto, I was all in. So I started following the team, learning more about football, the team's history, Ralph Wilson, and getting gradually more invested in games. There were lots of moments that fanned the flames. Stevie's God tweet, beating the Pats in 2011, resulting in Tom Brady shaving his head afterwards. But all this came to a head in 2012, during the Falcons game in Toronto. You know the one. The emotional roller coaster that game put me through, alongside the rage I felt after the overtime loss, brought me back to October 2006. At that moment... I realized that I was emotionally invested in the Bills, and there was no turning back. Thank goodness the Toronto series died with that loss. So yeah, that's my story. Apologies for the long read, but I hope it gets you percolating on some new ideas for the offseason. Go Bills, Andy. Again, I usually try not to read the whole things, but that's a cool story. And it speaks to the emotional investment that people have. We talk a lot on this pod about logic, probabilities, process, structure. But I've tried, I don't know if you've noticed this, over the last couple of weeks, the pod has been emotionally slanted. As the fandom has become more excited and optimistic, I have tried to tap into this on this pod because the Thursday pod isn't about me telling you the things I want to tell you. It's about me giving you my opinion on the things that you already are thinking about. It's one of the only reasons I still have social media, ladies and gentlemen. It's to keep my pulse on you. I want to know what it is you're thinking about, what it is you're talking about. So I peruse and I read and I provoke thought with a few of my tweets and I want to get a vibe, a feel for what you're thinking about because emotions are a part of this. And so I don't want to be a podcaster who's not capable of talking about those things because those things matter to you. And if they matter to you, then they matter enough to me for me to figure it out and have a conversation about it. And if I'm not capable of having a conversation about it, then I better darn well learn because that's what you want to hear about. And that's the responsibility I have. Luke says, Hey, Bruce, Love the show. Looking forward to a playoff run with you and the rest of Bill's Mafia. Me too. I don't have a take for the game because of the circumstance. My question is, do you think Josh Allen is truly turning into a force in this league? I keep waiting for the clock to strike midnight on him, but every game, quarter, drive, and play keeps showing elite quarterback play. Keep up the good work. Thanks, Luke and Atlanta. Josh Allen is a force in this league. He's not turning into it. He is. The question is, what is the sample size of him being a force? If he turned into a pumpkin tomorrow, that doesn't change the fact that he was a force this year and he was awesome. 
So he, he is. He is a force in this league. He is a really good player. The only question at this point is how long is he a really good player? That's where we get into the sample size thing. It's not like you have this wind-up and then all of a sudden you've arrived. No, he's a good player right now. You take the data as it comes. He's a good player right now. The question is, will he remain a good player? And that's a completely different topic. Something for potentially later on. But yes, he's not turning into a force in this league. He is a force in this league. And even if the clock did strike midnight and he turned into a pumpkin, that doesn't change anything. That doesn't mean he all of a sudden wasn't good. Because this isn't Mitch Trubisky. Mitch Trubisky wasn't good in 2018. Well, Bruce, look a little deeper. He wasn't actually good. It was smoke and mirrors by the Bears offense. Blake Bortles was not good in 2017. He wasn't. It's not the same thing. Josh Allen is good right now. So they didn't have moments where they were good and then fall off. They were never really that good. Josh Allen has played really well this year. He is a force right now. We can have an entirely different discussion on sample size and how long he has to be at that level before we're comfortable there. For some people, they were comfortable last year. I had someone tell me before this year started in March of 2020, before this year ever started from a football season standpoint, they told me that Josh Allen is a superstar and I was insane for not thinking so. Your interpretation of Josh Allen's sample size of elite quarterback play is based on whether or not you thought he was elite last year. I don't think so. I don't think 2019 Josh Allen was elite quarterback play. I said many, many times, I thought he was a below average passer in 19 and a tremendous runner. And that kind of balanced out for him to be a me quarterback in 2019. I don't think that was elite quarterback play. If you do, then you're probably totally sold on Josh Allen. You're like 2019, 2020, give the man the bag. If you don't think 19 was elite play, then you only think there's one year of elite quarterback play. There's no argument that 2020 is elite quarterback play from Josh Allen. I have zero patience for you if you think that what we're seeing right now is not high-level quarterback play from Josh Allen. I don't know what to tell you. The film says it. The advanced metrics say it. Analysts you should probably trust say it. 2020 is unquestionably elite quarterback play from Josh Allen. Your interpretation of the sample size is based on whether or not you thought 18 and 19 were elite quarterback years. I don't think either one of them was. And I've said that before, so I'm not going to go back and change it now retroactively. I don't think 19 was an elite quarterback year for Josh Allen. I think 2020 is. But I think it's important that we talk about that. That when I talk about sample size for elite quarterback play, I'm talking about 2020. Someone else might be talking about 2019 and 2020, and someone else entirely might think 18 was good. I don't know how you make that argument that he was really good in 2018. But to be fair, I don't know how you make the argument he was really good in 19 either. I don't think he was really good in either year. But he's really good this year. 
So when you're having a discussion with someone about Josh Allen and you talk about sample size, it's important to clarify whether or not they thought it was franchise level in 2019. I don't think so, but they might. Trevor says, good afternoon. My almighty take for the week. We see Allen slash key starters for a quarter next week against Miami. With Pittsburgh sitting Ben, I find it hard to believe we want to test fate and start our boys as well. We don't think, I don't think we'll see a lot of action from him this week. Bonus almighty take. If we decide to play the game with everyone, Miami is forced to go play Fitz due to check down Tua's inability to move the ball. Hope this finds you well, Bruce, or whatever your real name may be. Who says my real name isn't Bruce? This could just be the greatest long con in the history of podcasting. What if my name is actually Bruce Nolan? That'd be awesome. If it's true. But it might not be. It might be. I don't know. Who knows? So obviously, the Dolphins are not going to play Ryan Fitzpatrick. He tested positive for COVID-19 after you sent this email. I don't think we see the stars for a week. I think we see them prep, and I think we see one drive from them. Because I think that's kind of the value that Sean McDermott sees in preparation. I don't think Sean McDermott views the value in the reps. I think he views the value and the momentum as part of the process. No pun intended. And I think that's where Sean McDermott identifies value. It's in the preparation. It's in doing the same thing, the routine, getting ready for the opponent. So I think we see him for a drive. That's my prediction. So I'm going to say somewhat improbable on this one. We are going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. We've got more almighty takes to get through. Stick with me. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, and thank you for joining me for this edition of the Bruce Exclusive, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram, at Bruce Exclusive. I forgot to ask you if you like the cowbell intro. Please hit me up on Twitter and let me know if you like the cowbell intro, which is kind of a funny idea inspired by a tweet that I got, and then I had a direct message with a gentleman who I really have a lot of respect for, and he mentioned it too. So I thought I'd just, I don't know, try something new. Tell me if you liked it or not. Michael says, hi, Bruce. I know you're a busy man, so I'll get right to it. I respect that, Michael. My almighty take starts with the Bills losing Brian Dable in the offseason. I'm with you so far. To a head coaching job somewhere else in the NFL. I know this has been discussed ad nauseum amongst the Bills Mafia this season, but I don't think I've heard nearly enough about exactly what this means for the long-term plans at One Bills Drive. Many fans and content creators that I have heard plead with the Bills to hide Dable's play-calling talent so that we can keep him around for another season or two of the Diggs-Allen show. I strongly disagree with this perspective. I believe for an organization to operate with sustained success, it needs to show the rest of the NFL that it is a stable landing spot for top free agent players and coaches alike. Dable getting a head coaching job somewhere else shows that Buffalo can be a springboard for high-end coordinators that have aspirations of being a head coach. Developing coaching trees is what great teams do because great teams have great head coaches. Andy Reid and Bill Belichick come to mind here. Where does everyone think McDermott and Dable came from? Did losing those high-end coaches doom those programs? No, because the best young candidates have always lined up to work with them. Therefore, the second part of my take is that although we lose Dable, we handpick a top offensive coordinator candidate that fits our offensive philosophy. The offense continues its high-flying ways under this new OC in 2021 as the Bills once again win the AFC East. 
Leslie Frazier is a head coach once again in 2022 after a much better year for the defense and a ton of additional exposure from nationally televised games. This triggers a decade-long game of musical chairs for the Bills' OC and DC positions. Due to sustained success, Sean McDermott builds a true coaching tree by the end of the decade that can rival any other. Thanks for everything you do. Go Bills. Mike from Toronto. Mike, I really appreciate you bringing this up. There are examples of good teams that have had long-term coordinators. Obviously, Belichick and McDaniels have been together for a long time. Belichick had a little bit of a uh, a detour with McDaniels before he came back. McDaniels, of course, was the coach of the Broncos, offensive coordinator for the Rams, and then came back. But if you look at teams like the Steelers, who had Dick LeBeau for all of those years, quick departure to the Bills, but ended up back with the Steelers. So there are examples of great organizations that don't have expansive coaching trees. But the fact of the matter is, a lot of teams do. And I think the thing that gives the Bills fans consternation about this is that a lot of those teams have a head coach who calls plays. Specifically, Andy Reid. Now, he doesn't call plays with the Kansas City Chiefs, but he is a big part of the offensive system. So they don't have to worry about the offensive system going you know, haywire, they kind of promote from within. You know, Mike Kafka might take over if Eric Bieniemy leaves, if Kafka doesn't this offseason. And they just keep the train on rolling. The thing for the Bills is that they look around and they go, okay, there isn't a logical successor on staff. Everyone talks about Ken Dorsey, who's never called plays before ever. So, That's the thing I think that gives Bill's Mafia a little consternation about Brian Dable. Because if Leslie Frazier leaves, we already know Sean McDermott can call plays. But if Brian Dable leaves, we go, um, who is it? And there isn't a logical replacement. It's that security that they feel weird about. And I agree with you. Sean McDermott, who is allegedly a very well-prepared guy, needs to have a plan for this. And I do think that There will be offensive coordinators who will look at Josh Allen, Stephon Diggs, and the weapons that this team has and goes, why would I not want to go there? Why would I not want to go to that organization and polish up my resume? And I can be a head coach in a couple years. So I don't think the Bills are going to be lacking for suitors. It's not a bottom-of-the-barrel job anymore. There's a burgeoning star at quarterback and lots of weapons. So if you screw that up, it might be you, dude. We may have isolated the variable. It might be you. So I like this take. I think this is a somewhat probable take. Brian says, Hi, Bruce. My take is this. The season is already a success. Not only have the Bills won the division, they've established themselves among the NFL elite. We thought they might be able to do this, but most of those predictions would have been driven by top 15 play by Allen combined with the dominant defense. To see Allen and the offense operate at such a high level has been so exciting. I wouldn't want to pin down success based on a single game and all the randomness that involves. To me, we've hit success, and now it's just a matter of to what degree. Brian, Grand Island. First off, shout out to the people from Grand Island. You all know someone who is from Grand Island. Joe Marino, Locked On Bills, Draft Network, 
also a Grand Islander. I have never been. I hear it's very nice. Brian's take, whether or not you think this season is a success, is based on how many boxes you feel like need to be checked before it's a success. So is division championship and Josh Allen taking a huge step forward, is that good enough? Or do you have to win a playoff game too? I personally think the most important box to check was Josh Allen. Even if you didn't win a division championship. Even if you didn't win a playoff game. Because Josh Allen being good gives you more seasons to get those things done. So I would say that we're right there on the edge. I hadn't really thought about it, but I think we're right there on the edge. I think for sure if the Bills win a playoff game, that's pretty much the last box that needs to be checked aside from, you know, winning a Super Bowl from an organizational standpoint. Now, there are some individual things we talked about on previous pods about checking boxes, league MVPs, things like that. But I think the biggest box that needed to be checked when it comes to projection for the future was Josh Allen, and it already got checked. So I think this is a somewhat probable take. Jesse says, Bruce, McDermott said the Bills will play for the highest seed possible, and the Bills will do just that on Sunday, eliminating the Dolphins from playoff contention in heartbreaking fashion by stopping them on the final drive of the game by a score of 27-20. to Meanwhile, Pittsburgh will lose to Cleveland in a game where Tomlin rests Roethlisberger. The short-term consequences of these circumstances will be Buffalo facing a slightly more challenging wildcard opponent than they would have faced if they rested their starters and conceded to Miami. With all other AFC playoff contenders besides the Dolphins and Steelers winning, Indianapolis will slide into the seventh slot, replacing Cleveland as Buffalo's wildcard opponent. Although I feel good about the prospect of facing either team, I think the Colts have performed more consistently and pose a slightly greater threat now. However, the Bills' aggressive decision to compete in Week 17 will pay off in the long run. Not only will they secure at least one extra game of home field advantage by clinching the second seed in a win, they will intensify the war of attrition throughout the rest of the conference. If the AFC contenders accept the Dolphins and Steelers win as I expect in Week 17, then the Titans and Ravens, two of the Bills' three most formidable opponents, will be forced to meet in the wildcard round, and the survivor will face Kansas City. This scenario, which eliminates the prospect of a Miami upset over the Titans, presents the highest probability of producing a formidable challenger to Kansas City in round two. Although a viable case can be made for resting starters, I believe McDermott still believes there's significant incentive for the Bills to clinch the second seed and ride their current momentum in the postseason. Therefore, I'm expecting a compelling Week 17 matchup, Jesse. I already said earlier in this pod that I think that McDermott will have everyone prepare and they'll play a couple snaps or maybe even a drive and they'll be done. So that's my opinion based on what he did last year and based on a feeling and based on the fact that he said he's going to talk to Brandon Bean. It just feels like he's going to keep it internal. I just, I'm deducing based on the evidence that I think that's going to happen. We'll see. But I do like your I do like your opinion here. I do like your take about trying to set it up so that as best as possible, there's a chance that two formidable teams could potentially, one of which could face Kansas City in the second round and potentially bounce them, maybe leading to a home AFC championship game for the Bills. You never know. Chris says, my almighty take 
is that on Thursday, September 9th, 2021, the 2021 NFL regular season will begin with a Tyler Bass kickoff. For this to happen, the Bills either have to win the Super Bowl or be the visiting team against the Super Bowl winner. Bills will play at the Chiefs, Saints, Buccaneers, Titans, and Dolphins in 2021. According to PlayoffStatus.com, the odds of one of those teams or the Bills winning the Super Bowl is 65%, at least prior to Week 17. Granted, just because a team that will host the Bills win the Super Bowl doesn't mean they'll have to play the Bills to kick off the season, but it seems like a great choice to me. The Bills are an entertaining, high-scoring, high-quality team with a feel-good story and a quarterback who's becoming a star. Of course, this argument becomes unnecessary if the Bills just win the Super Bowl. So, I say we do that. Last piece of the puzzle is the Bills have to be the team that is kicking the opening kickoff instead of receiving it. I believe the Bills generally choose to defer, and I see no reason to think McDermott would change that. And if they lose the toss, I can see a lot of teams wanting to start the season with the ball in their hands. Thanks for all you do, Chris. I love this take. It's so unique. We haven't gotten anything like this on the pod before. Thursday, September 9th, 2021, will kick off with Tyler Bass. Well, a lot of things have to go right for this to happen. There's a lot of parlays internally in this take. So I'm going to go highly improbable, but I still absolutely love it. Because the Bills either have to win the Super Bowl or play against the team who's winning the Super Bowl. Then they have to win the coin toss and elect to defer. So I'm going to go highly improbable just because I'm seeing this as like a 13 11% chance kind of thing. That's enough for highly improbable for me. I love it though. Jeremy says the bills starters play a couple series and put at least 10 on the board early before handing it over to the backups against Miami. The bills reserves play Miami close enough so that coach Flores pulls Tua in favor of one final round of Fitz magic. Fitz leads a comeback and Miami wins capping a magical season in which two bills quarterbacks, one current and one former lead their respective teams to the playoff. Thanks for the memories, Fitz. You deserve it. Well, we know that's not going to happen because Fitz, I said not absolutes. I said don't ever do an absolutes. I'm, I'm going with absolutes on this one. Absolutely not going to happen because Fitz, after you sent this email, Fitz was diagnosed with COVID-19. Evan says, I figure you already recorded the Friday pod. You got it in under the wire. But my late breaking almighty take is an 18 COVID playoff happens. Team most screwed, Kansas City. I'm going highly improbable on this. I think the NFL would have to do something absolutely insane at this point. They're they're too far committed. You can't pull out 18 playoff right now. It's just, it's just too, it's too close. I think they said they were going to do that if they had contingencies in place and they missed a bunch of games and that hasn't happened. So they're not going to do it. Patch says, I gave my father the best Christmas gift, the Bruce exclusive pod. One episode is all it took. So Patch and Patch's father, shout out to you guys. Thank you for listening. Almighty take, mentally, the Bills have already won the Super Bowl. Nobody wants to play them right now. Nobody. Can they win it? Yes. Will they win it? Only week 17 game matters. I agree. The Bills are a dangerous team right now. That's one of the reasons why people don't want to rest against Miami because they're afraid you're somehow going to lose that danger. I don't think that's a thing. But, the Bills are a dangerous team. They're getting some positive reinforcements from a health standpoint at the right time. Debit and credit says, Almighty take, first round buy is detrimental 
to either the NFC or AFC team this year. With a week off, some valuable player becomes COVID positive because they are more lax and celebrate and cost several players because of contact tracing. Oh man, that's a heck of a take, man. Having somebody on a number one seed contract COVID, I'm going to say highly improbable just because I think that that's going to be, you're not going to be the only person in the world who thought of that. And I think the coaches are going to be insane about it during their week off. I don't think we saw a lot of spiking around bye weeks this year. So I'm going to say highly improbable, but I think it's fascinating to think about. I mean, if somebody major comes down with COVID right there, first round by the playoffs, Ben says, Hey, the whole Patrick Mahomes 16 interception thing. Is this luck? Josh Allen has a few too, I'll bet. I wonder if their strong arms and the velocity on their throws makes it hard to intercept as players are getting the ball before a spot is intended to be completed. So this is something I could probably do a pot on in the offseason. See if there's a correlation between dropped interceptions and ball velocity. Like go with people who have strong arms and see if I can kind of correlate it. I would imagine there is a correlation there. It seems reasonable to me that someone who throws a quote-unquote more catchable ball would make it easier for someone who does not have the ball skills of a wide receiver, which is a defensive back. If they had crazy ball skills, they'd probably pay wide receiver. This is the way it is. So I don't have an opinion on this yet because I would have to do the research, but it sounds interesting to me. David says, thanks for the pod. Love it. Been thinking about arm talent. Clearly Josh has it, but how long can he sustain it? Lots of noodle arms as the clock turns like Cam, Peyton, Eli, Breeze, a few outliers like Rogers and Elway. How long can we hope that Josh can gun it? Brett Favre still had a cannon in his 40s. Arm strength has a tendency to hold up. Cam had some injuries. Peyton never really had a cannon. And Breeze never really had a cannon. But people who did, if you think about people like Stafford, Rogers, Elway, these are people who have absolute guns. And they held up later on into their careers. So barring injury, I do think Josh Allen should be able to hold up that arm strength anyway. Obviously, injuries happen sometimes, and they really, really, really hurt your ability. I mean, watching Cam Newton throw the ball now is unusual because of how wonky his mechanics have become because of the injuries. Patrick says, Bruce, in an effort for the Bills to sign both Matt Milano and Darrell Williams, as well as the chemistry between Josh, Diggs, and Beastly, and the emergence of Gabe Davis as a threat, I believe it would be in the best interest of the team, though painful, to release John Brown in the offseason, freeing up a little more than $8 million in cap space would be huge, and our wide receiver core has proven they can be elite without them. Brown is loved by the fans, and it would not be popular, but sometimes the better of the team is not the most popular thing to do. Thank you for your time, Patrick. I'm not interested in that. I'm not interested in this because John Brown is so far beyond Gabe Davis. And if you cut him, you are cutting him on an assumption that Gabe Davis is going to be something he hasn't shown to be. Gabe Davis is a perfectly reasonable wide receiver for he has not shown himself to be even a smidge of the receiver that John Brown is. That's worth $8 million to me. Even if I lost one of Matt Milano and Darrell Williams, the most important thing is Josh Allen in the offense. I'm not saying those other things don't matter. They do matter. But I am not interested in trying to save money 
at a place that we just got good at as a franchise. I'm not interested in trying to penny pinch at an area where we have a strength right now. And if we cut John Brown, it would be an assumption that Gabe Davis is going to jump forward. And if he doesn't, then you're one injury away from being a one-man show in the receiving core. I wouldn't be in favor of it. I understand why people would think that. This is not the Trent Murphy scenario for me. There were better players on the team than Trent Murphy this offseason. John Brown is markedly better than Gabriel Davis. And I want to keep all the weapons I possibly can for Josh Allen, even if that means that there's some issue. But I do think that restructures can happen. I do think there are some moves to be made. As a shout out, make sure you go and listen to the pod that Anthony Marino did with Greg Tomset a couple weeks back about some potential options for the salary cap. I'm not going to go through all of them now, but I think potentially extending John Brown might make a lot more sense than cutting him to lower that cap number. That's my personal opinion. So that's it, ladies and gentlemen. We got it under an hour. There was a lot of takes to get to, but we did it. And now I'm done for the week. And I'm going to go out into the other room and I'm going to sit down. I'm going to take a load off, kick my feet up, watch an episode of television with my wife. And when inevitably the bad guy gets caught, At the end of the episode, I'm just going to shrug my shoulders and say, hey, buddy, sorry to hear it. Uh, That's the way the cookie crumbles. I'm Bruce Nolan, Buffalo Rumblings.